Hello and welcome to Dicing with Design, episode five. We've reached the lofty half up to double figure heights. Yeah. Yeah. Episode five, awesome. <laughs> this is Dicing with Design with uh, Colin, Grant and Joe. And uh, I just want to, we're going to put out a little appeal this time around. Um, if you can give us some feedback, we'd love to know if anybody's actually listening to this show. Uh, so if you can get us on uh, Twitter, you can get us on Twitter at uh, gamercolin. Uh, no, it's not dot anything, is it? At GamerColin. Uh, we've got at Grant Sensei, and yeah. we've got at Joe J. Prince. Uh, and also, actually, we've uh, we've uh, hit the um, prestigious heights of having our own domain now, haven't we, guys? So oh, yeah. uh, you can get us at Colin at DicingWithDesign.com, Grant at DicingWithDesign.com, and Joe at DicingWithDesign.com. Uh, and if you want to go to uh, the show notes or anything like that as well, you can just go to DicingWithDesign.com and that'll direct you to our podcasting site. So, over to the actual entertaining things. Uh, how are you getting on, guys? Not bad, not bad. Got some games in since since we are last on. Yeah, good stuff. I think I have as well, actually. It's good. I've been listening to a few gaming podcasts, actually. I've got, I've got a few questions for you guys and things I heard about that I have absolutely no idea about, so we'll be getting to that later. Right, cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, first things first, what have you been up to this week? Do you want to go first, Grant? Sure enough, yep. Uh, first of all, I took a trip home a couple of weeks ago, and my uh, Kickstarter for Sedition Wars was sitting there. Uh, a massive box of, of, of minis and all the extra goodies I got, well, some of the extra goodies that I got through the Kickstarter. And, uh, yeah, the models look really nice. And, and the rules seem quite... Hmm? Sorry to say, what is Sedition Wars? Just... Yep, yeah, as we're discussing it on, actually tell people what we're talking about. Uh, Sedition Wars is the <laughs> Sedition Wars is the creation of Mike McVeigh of Studio Studio McVeigh, who's a big name in the industry. Super famous uh, painter and sculptor, isn't he? Of minis. Yep, for for Games Workshop. He also helped to start up uh, Privateer Press when they made their War Machine and uh, and Hordes games. And uh, he's also been used as a consultant with uh, with Mantic as well recently on their on their Dreadball release, which is oh, their their sports game. Yeah, um, his main his main his main business nowadays is uh, making sort of collectors edition minis, really nice resin sculpts. But uh, now he's expanding his science fiction uh, his science fiction. Uh, setting into into a, into a board game, I think he's going to uh, push that out into make it a full size war game eventually. Uh, but starting off with a sort of Space Hulk style um, combat game, uh, which I've bought and it looks pretty nifty, and uh, can't wait to get a, get get it out and um, have a game with you guys. Nice. So, so what, what's the sort of quick summary of the rules? What kind of what approach is it? Zombies were zombies versus space marines. Um, Can't say space marine. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, that's, oh, that's all been going on. Hashtag space marine. Uh, yeah, it's uh, space uh, combat people. People. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, nice. Yeah, uh, the, the the rules are all based on. There's some not un, un not entirely unlike Space Hulk, okay. Um, 
but much more advanced than that. So it's not quite simple. Um, with, with I, I'm not, ex- you know, I've not, having not played it, I can't speak to it too much. Okay, no worries, I'm yeah. quite, I'm quite excited to try the mechan- the the really cool mechanics are the uh, the strain who are like the zombies, and they're all based on these nanobots that float around in the air, uh, infect dead bodies, and then more. If you add more and more of these clouds of nanobots, can actually upgrade these zombies. Uh, into harder and harder killing machines. All right. Uh, yeah. So Sounds the, good. The, the, they don't have fixed models. They they take on the bot, take over bodies, and and make themselves harder as the game goes along. Okay. But the space marine types are more of an organized force, and they have order tokens and things where they can focus their attention. Okay. So they have a little bit more of an order based system. To them, and uh, they're almost like using command points. Yeah, uh, so there's a contrast to the two sides. Sorry, Grant, I was just going to say it sounds like it's going to be interesting to see how it contrasts with uh, Project Pandora, uh, the Mantic sci fi skirmish game. Yeah, skirmish I would say, game. yeah, from the sounds of it, and having played Dwarf King's Hold, uh, the other Mantic game, I, I think uh, Pandora is probably more like space, more like. Uh, Space Hulk in that is quite simple, uh, but uh, Pandora, sorry, um, Sedition Wars is more like uh, more like a miniature board game. A couple of couple of the mechanics, the way that the cover works, does remind me a lot of the XCOM computer game that, I'm, that I've been playing. Uh, so, which which going to be a good thing because I really like that. Well, if it's sounded like XCOM, I'm in. Yep. <laughs> Not like get XCOM off of the early nineties. Uh, no, that's <laughs> it's got to be like that XCOM. That's the only XCOM. Sure. And not Terror from the Deep either. <laughs> that would be the sequel to the to the old XCOM game, and basically just the same game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, well, so well, they actually just swapped the sprites. We'll turn uh, these uh, what do you call them greys into squids. That'll do. New game. That's exactly <laughs> what they did. The old XCOM. Game. Anyway. Um, it, the school games club. I got an, uh, We finished off our internal contenders um, uh, campaign. You finished uh, a campaign. Yeah, internal campaign uh, contenders. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the first one ever to be completed. I, I believe uh, certainly. I think it um, probably is. Yeah. That's got to be a credit it's in the book, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> a bit late now. The books are the printers. Oh, second edition. Certainly, in this this version of the rules, um, the uh, yeah, one kid got got to realise his greatest hope. Of course, um, have we explained Eternal Contenders before? Um, I think we've kind of touched on it in what we've been playing, but we've not done a full a full in depth uh, analysis and explanation. Yeah, we may want to save that for. Are we going to talk about that later on? Anyway. Um, it'll, well, it'll come up a bit, but not really if we're looking at. Uh, I reckon GM we should do a, a full contenders review in a future episode. We'll come back. I to think that, yeah. it'll tie well into like when we're looking at GMless games as well. Yeah, yeah. We'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes to uh, the Eternal Contenders website in case anybody wants to go and look at it just now. But we'll come back to it in future episodes and uh, talk about it in depth. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, yeah, in the end, uh, I played this character to make up the numbers, which ha- was losing and losing almost deliberately all the time and building up its pain stat. 
unfortunately some poor kid had to face off against that because even though pain makes you lose at the end of the game it makes you awesome at combat because you, <laughs> you're feeling so much angst uh, for one turn at least and yeah I molar this poor kid I, um, sorry <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and, it's end, and he ended up losing uh, and uh, in this role playing game because you can lose in this game in a way sometimes it's yeah. better to uh, sometimes it's a more interesting story that you're telling when you're losing uh, certainly I've, I've found that before uh, but yeah yeah he um yeah. Crushed his hopes and dreams, <laughs> didn't you, Grant? Yeah. <laughs> what age is this kid, Grant? <laughs> 13. Oh, well, he, he can handle it by that point, oh, surely. For life lesson. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Grow character and all that. <laughs> um, continuing the ongoing uh, contenders and uh, campaign uh, on a Tuesday night with my grown up group. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's going well. I'm continuing. If you want to know about that, there I've just posted another post. I'm doing a turn-by-turn uh, account of that on RPGNet. Mm-hmm. And it's good as well. Really enjoying it. Actually, you're, you're writing it really well, Grant. It's just quite uh, it's quite entertaining. Yeah, it's cool. This is steampunk setting as well, isn't it? Which is something that's uh, not seen done before. Yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. In the end, most of the stuff we're doing is is there's as much uh, photovoltaic cells as there is steam power. Is the way right. it, my character is going on. So it's almost like electropunk, if you will. <laughs> electropunk vol- Victoriana. <laughs> uh, we'll link over I'm to that. A, uh, I'm inventing a genre by basically yeah. ripping, yeah. ripping off steampunk. Uh, <laughs> And just changing it slightly. But that's kind of like uh, A state. That's uh, um, supposed to be electro, electro Victoriana steampunk. It's not steam; it's electricity and stuff. Or gaslight fantasy. That's another one that I've heard used. Really? Uh, for, it's like <laughs> steampunk, but we don't want to call it steampunk. <laughs> <laughs> is the whole uh, is the Frankenstein legend? Is that uh, electro electro punk? If because uh, he's bringing it to life with a Lightning bolt and all that. Yeah. So actually, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that just came up because I, I've just been listening to the Nearly Enough Dice guys again. They always talk about that. Um, you know, the the setting that's created around Frankenstein, the legends of Frankenstein, well, I think it is. Yeah, the legacy of Frankenstein. Legacy of Frankenstein, yeah. that's the one, yeah. And that sounds yeah, like a really cool setting. Steve up, up here in Aberdeen, who actually, mm. I believe, if I remember correctly, wrote the system for that. All right, uh, okay. Steve Ironside, yeah. Hmm, cool. um, so I know a bit about that. I've never got a game in. Whenever there was been a game of it up here in Aberdeen, of course, there's been a. Everyone seems to get in before me, so I've never, I've never managed to play a game. Maybe I'll get into oh. play a game next. Uh, yeah. Next time <laughs> where we uh, change games for the next session. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, from there, so that that's like I said that if you want to know about that, that's going great guns in the uh, RPG net. We're coming to the end of that. Um, we might actually get there in terms of reaching the, the limit in the game when somebody reaches 10 renown and then that triggers end game. We might have to we might have to just um, draw the line somewhere and have the final battles and see whether ultimate fears or ultimate hopes for our uh, for our characters come to pass. Uh, but we'll see how that goes. Uh Next up, we a little bit of Game of Thrones uh, living card game with the uh, kids at school. I've um, been doing lots of painting from uh, from uh, Warriors of Chaos. 
and reading my new Warriors of Chaos pamphlet. Uh, it's a heavy pamphlet. To... <laughs> it's a heavy pamphlet because it's got two big bits of cardboard on the side of it. It's 90 pages, a 30-pound book. Yeah. Welcome to our new feature, Grant's Rant. <laughs> So, <laughs> and my whole idea for for the Warriors of Chaos Army in Warhammer Fantasy Battle being a uh, a large number of marauders, which was a pretty bad idea in the last book, is right, even worse. Hmm? In the last book, unless they were like corn with great weapons, then it was just overly cheesy. But yeah. Yeah, no, I'm determined to do a Slanesh army because it's taken me two years to work out the uh, the paint scheme. <laughs> <laughs> they do look awesome in Marauders as well. That's like, yeah, we'll have to find a way to run them. But uh, yeah. it is a bit annoying. <laughs> you invested into painting how many and then suddenly they're not quite as good as they used to be. It's <laughs> <laughs> the same as they always were. It's just they cost more points, literally twice as much, probably, if, if I kick them out. Um, if anyone has any ideas on how to... Uh, on how to run these in a Warhammer Fantasy Battle game, then I'd uh, appreciate a wee line or someone can link up, link me to a uh, a tactica. Yeah, I think like a minimum strength units idea with a war shrine might might be the best way to go. Try and get some free demon princes, and just if there's I'm thinking if there's a niche and you got like a unit of ten with flails, mm. then you know they're going to make combat because they're not going to run off. They're not going to yeah. be panicked. So you can kind of use them as like flankers or redirectors, suicide troops. You know they're going to die, but they'll hit hard once. Of them and have yeah. Been, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, also uh, I think that's about it. Oh no, I've been reading Hamlet's <laughs> Hit Points. Yeah, I've been loads. I've oh, been reading Robin Hamlet's yeah. Hit Points, which is a book by uh, Robin D. Laws, in which he analyzes. Um, these stories, it's Hamlet, Doctor No, and Casablanca in terms of if they were a game and in terms of upbeat and downbeat section. Right? Um, he's disappeared, isn't he? <laughs> okay. Where's he gone? <laughs> Grant. He's been overwhelmed by the uh, <laughs> writing of Robin D. Laws and he's yes. disappeared. I, I want to know more about Hamlet's hit points because that was always struck me as interesting, but I've not actually got around to buying it or yeah. reading it. Um, I've backed the Robin Laws Kickstarter that he had recently. Right, okay. Um, the Hill Folk, which looks looks. Ah, uh, yeah, I saw something about that one actually. There was quite a lot of uh, hype around that, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, and, uh, part of the the Hill Folk Kickstarter, you could get Hamlet's hit points as one of the uh, okay, pledges. one of the add-ons. So what were you saying about Hamlet's hit points? Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, that I, I would blame Google Hangouts, but it's, that was actually me hitting the big red X at the top of the top. Of the <laughs> <laughs> Why did he put it there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, Robin D. Laws. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's an, an analysis of the ups and downs and how you might put that in a game. There's not so much. I uh, know I've not gone to the end of it, so I haven't really gotten to any sort of conclusion about why this is good, why it's good to have that certain rhythm. He talks about rhythms and, and uh, every little bit of a scene is a, is a beat, uh, where it's an upbeat or a downbeat. Uh, 
it's, proce it's a procedural up or, a, or a procedural down or a uh, emotional up or an emotional down, depending on the story. It's just, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. I've become more interested over the years of what makes a good story anyway. Um, um, and, and what we're doing with, with playing games with. So what I like about playing games and role-playing games is it's a way of telling a story. And um, maybe a more in-depth review once I've, once I've gotten to the end of that and actually watched uh, Dr. No and gone to the end of Casablanca because I was watching that at the weekend because I got love <laughs> film. And I think that might be just about me. Um, other geeky stuff I've been doing. I was watching The Wrestler and I was what I'm reading a, a book called World War by Harry Turtledove, which is about the Second World War. Oh, is that the yeah the the lizard attack? Yes, if the if the lizards <laughs> had attacked, the alien lizards had attacked in 1941. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are really good. They're, that that series really annoys me now though because it's quite long. Like there's tons of books in it. But I can't remember what I got to in it. I've read about three or four <laughs> or five books, and I can't remember which one I got to. <laughs> so now I'm not sure where to start again. <laughs> I'm not going back to start because it's too damn long. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, Joe. What, have, uh, what about yourself? What have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? Um, Gaming-wise, I've not not done so much. Uh, apart from the weekend, the gaming weekend that we had, where we played uh, a few games, didn't we? Uh, over in uh, Dunfermline. Yep. Don't have we talked about that? Oh, I've I've actually, yeah, I should have. I should have said about that. So I'm doing. I'm no, doing, no, doing something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> On you go. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so we went met up for a, a gaming weekend, and I thought it'd be quite fun to do like a, a Magic the Gathering booster draft style tournament thing. So I bought a load of cards cheaply off eBay and put them in envelopes, and we all had our little sealed decks, didn't we? And did a little booster draft, built, <laughs> built some yeah. decks to play with over the weekend. <laughs> Do you want to explain the concept of a booster draft? Because that's something I hadn't, I kind of heard of. I think you told me about it 15 years ago or something, Joe. Yeah, um, I mean, I probably won't. I get the terminology quite right for the official Wizards of the Coast booster draft that they do, but basically, um, you go to play. Magic. Normally, you'll pay like your entry fee of like what will be these days, twenty quid or something. And for that, you get so many boosters. I think it's normally about six. Um, and then the idea is everyone sits in a circle. Everyone opens one booster. They pick one card that they want, and then pass the, the other fourteen cards to the person next to them, uh, usually to the left. But then it reverses for each alternate booster, and you just kind of grab grab a card, pass it on, and try and draft the best deck you can. From that, um, so it's quite interesting because if everyone starts on a level playing field, you can't just spend three hundred quid to buy the best cards, <laughs> and build like the Uber deck that's been on the internet. Yeah, um, and it's and it's quite and you can't prepare that much because you got to. Um, it depends what's going round as you decide what colours you want to draft. Like if you just grabbed every best card, you'd end up with a five colour deck or something, and you'd not be able to play anything. <laughs> um, so that's that's yeah, quite entertaining. And, yeah, it was good fun. I really enjoyed it. It was, it was the first few uh, rounds where you were trying to figure out exactly what you should start collecting that were quite interesting. So you saw a card you really liked, and that pretty much started your colour, didn't it? And then I ended yeah. up seeing uh, a theme. There was one special rule. I think it was the, um, what's it the called thing. again? Poisoned? 
Infect, is, wasn't it? Infect, yeah, yeah the Infect right. rule. And so I started collecting anything that had that on it. And it turned out that every bloody card in the boosters has Infect on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was the only one without Infect. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, Infect was my main strategy as well for, <laughs> for winning. <laughs> I think that's what I won most of my game through from what flying, infecting, white, shrike thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah, it was really good. Cool. Um, so Anything it. else, Joe? Um, we, we played uh, old school Warhammer Fantasy roleplay as well, didn't we? We had a game of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was interesting. In, in a way, it's kind of like everything that annoys me about old school <laughs> games <laughs> rolled into one. So I just had to make my own fun by just playing a really odd, obnoxious dwarf. Yeah, <laughs> was fun, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just immerse in the character. And and the way that it's so unbalanced as well, I happened to roll like practically the best character you could get. Like he was practically unkillable. Yeah. He was so hard. It was ludicrous. Like people just took nine damage and I go like, yeah, I'll take one of my eight wounds. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> he rolled maximum toughness and maximum wounds, and then got a toughness increase, and then started with armor and shield. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stone skin dwarf. <laughs> yeah, which just the way the system works is uh, makes it a bit crazy, especially when you've got nah. other player characters running around with toughness too. Yeah, but, like, yeah. I, I think the needle die. <laughs> yeah, I think I ended up with a guy that was pretty good at fighting, but basically I couldn't get hit, otherwise he'd just crumple yeah yeah <laughs> so um, it was I, I it was I well actually probably good to talk about that later because that's about the GM and stuff but yeah I'm not sure what I thought about the session either yeah it was a bit uh, yeah a bit, a bit all over the place but yeah but we'll focus on that later um, yes indeed and, and other than that I'm not really um, got much gaming we, we had a Half a game of Battlestar Galactica. Really yep. <laughs> An abortive attempt. <laughs> An abortive attempt before someone yeah. mysteriously disappeared and never returned. Yeah, that, Who is that? Yeah, apparently a very, very tired person who <laughs> been up uh, since six the night before, or the day before. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly, but hey, I don't know. Yeah, half an hour later. Don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> half an hour later. I don't think Colin's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've been waiting half an hour to do this skill check. <laughs> we've been the game. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> no worries, I think oh, we're well. pretty much dead. Yeah. And, uh, the only other thing we've done is um, started rolling up some old school uh, war bands for Warhammer. Oh yeah. From the Chaos books, the Lost and the Damned and the Slaves to Darkness. Yeah. So I had a quick session rolling up some of that. That's just crazy madness as well. So I've just started hacking up a little a Blood Bowl dwarf to try and convert him into the freak that I rolled up with <laughs> tentacles and a beaked goat face and extra <laughs> knee joints and all these other things. You could probably still extra knee joints. Yeah. <laughs> That's on the table. I can't even remember yeah, who got the poisonous sweat. <laughs> That somebody got awesome. somebody got like corrosive sweat or something like that. And that was Russ's guy, wasn't he? he had to... Right, let's explain that for the listeners, because <laughs> not many, not not that many, might remember all the way back to the to the realms of chaos books. Yeah, to be honest, uh, I have no idea. I got explained by uh, Joe and Russ at the time, so yeah, find a way. Yeah, these are the books from uh, the the late eighties, I think it was. A kind of legendary um, first chaos source books that came out for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and Fantasy Battle as it was back then. Um, 
And then if you've got the original ones, they go on eBay, eBay for a small fortune these days. I've seen them going for like 50 quid and stuff. Really? Um, and it's just a book of, of loads of crazy tables. <laughs> Madness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've never book. seen a thousand before. <laughs> yeah, 2,000 tables. <laughs> you roll your chaos attributes. And uh, I just remember like years ago when I bought one of the White Dwarfs, probably one that had some of Mike McVeigh's painting in it, but they had like an article on Chaos Warbands as, as someone had just rolled up their Chaos Warband and they had like this winged minotaur and then some Chaos Dwarves and a little familiar following around their uh, beastman um, spellcaster or whatever it was. Um, yeah, and they're supposed to fight off against you. You get your randomly yeah. generated uh, warband off of these crazy tables, and you're supposed to make them fight off against each other. Yeah, and the, but there's absolutely no balance at all. No, they didn't try to make any balance. They just they kind of just had this sort of Darwinian um, system where if you rolled up a crap warband, it would die. It, <laughs> yeah, that, that's just what would happen. You just have to accept that. There's lots of stuff in those books. I mean, just looking at them, it, I mean, this is what's been whittled down into a 90-page book warrior of chaos books nowadays. There was a huge amount of just fluff and uh, and all these amazing rules and tables of all these many, many mutations that's all been kind of whittled down and streamlined down in, into what now is, is the Warriors of Chaos book. I suppose the Demon book as well. Mean the warrior of yeah, chaos, but and beastmen, I suppose, well. but yeah, but the big uh, beastmen have been taken out of the chaos wastes and they're now in the uh, forests of the of the old world. Yeah, but they used to be. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they got split, they got split yeah. out from the rest of chaos. Mm -hmm. Poor beastmen. <laughs> I hate beastmen. That's why I didn't like my warband because it was all beastmen. <laughs> I'm re-rolling it. Beastmen and a cold one. He had a beast like some kind of gold. Yeah, those first, that first warband I rolled up, I had, it wasn't a warband. It was three guys, and one of them was a cold one. <laughs> <laughs> a cold hang on, that's like, Yeah, that's a velociraptor. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't quite right. <laughs> Mine just had mine just was completely unbalanced in that my hero was half as good as the uh, the brigand chieftain, wasn't he? Had yeah. a little uh, yeah helper guy who basically would have kicked my ass. <laughs> yeah. It's a twentieth level hero, wasn't he? Twentieth level hero brigand, <laughs> and your, yeah. was, your guy was like a tenth level uh, yeah. dark elf. What were, you, were you dark elf? Or? No, you uh, no, I had a, had a team of dark elves uh, oh, helping me. Yeah. I was uh, was I an elf? I can't remember now. You were a horse-faced human, weren't you? Oh, yeah. That definitely makes me human. Yeah, no, it wasn't It wasn't the best in the world. But hey, we'll give it a go the way. Fancy trying them out. I don't think it'll take long. No. 20 minutes. Five models. It's more of like a modelling project. I think, yeah, really, because then we have to decide what set of rules we're going to use to run it. Because trying to go back to second edition one fantasy battle is going to be quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, next, I suppose uh, I, my gaming. Um, yeah, that's uh, pretty much. You guys have talked about it already the last weekend. Uh, I do fancy having another finishing a game of um, Battlestar Galactica. I have to admit. I haven't played yeah. one in a wee while. Mm. Um, I was here. I was listening to um, D6 Generation the other day, though, and uh, they were talking about um, it was their go-to games episode, and they were talking about all their 
genres and it's basically it's given me a list of games that I want to try and look up and uh, maybe try and get hold of on eBay I can't afford to buy them all new because there was too many of them uh, but just talking about Battle- Battlestar they were talking about um, Shadows of Camelot uh, I think is that the Days of Wonder game yeah that was out before um, that was out before um, Battlestar yeah and it's kind of the other classic um Co-op, but with a secret traitor, basically game, <laughs> and I quite fancy that. It's quite as advanced. I don't think I have this whole find out halfway through um, really? mechanic. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I've no, I've no idea what the rules are, obviously. But um, and there's no, were... the, the rules don't change once you've revealed yourself. Right. So it's not quite so sophisticated, but uh, apparently. Well, they were given that a good review, so I thought it was worth yeah. a try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a good review as well. I do not I like it. Oh, I well, some who was it, Joe? You were talking about that, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, because you, you were saying you wanted to, to give it a try. Yeah, and I've and I've got it and I've played it. In fact, we talked touched on it on the Advanced Hero Quest episode last time. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's, I think, was it Grant? It summed up quite well. It's playing a game. It's like the front of every Terry Pratchett book. <laughs> That's what the game's like. You know, where just everybody, everything's happening, everybody, yeah. everything's going on, everybody, everything happens in the internet. Ah, yes, I remember talking about it now, yeah. Just like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about, uh, have you guys played Rune Wars? No. No? No. Because <clears throat> they were chatting about that, that sounded quite interesting. It's Is kind of a dungeon crawl uh, board game. So I suppose it's maybe a bit like Wrath of uh, Shardalon actually, but um, but they were saying it was really good. So yeah. Uh, anyway, there was yeah there was a few names that I, I picked up that I'm going to try and get hold of. Maybe uh, more stuff to talk about in the show, obviously. Cool. So apart from that, that'll do us, I think, for the what we've done this week. So shall we move on? <laughs> Probably about half an hour into the show. Move on to the main topic. So yeah. what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, the role of the GM this week. Uh, the role of the GM in designing and running a game. Hi folks, uh, it's Grant here. I was just wanting to add a little bit in here, I as well editing, that we were referring quite a lot to this document that I'd made up in the afternoon before the show, where I talked about uh, seven and then added another one, as, one in as the conversation went on. Uh, eight points about uh, just what exactly the roles of the GM are. Uh, So I thought I'd go through those one by one, just very quickly here so we know what we're talking about. Uh, Number one, I put in Scenario Designer. Uh, Almost self-explanatory. We're talking about placing challenges, monsters, traps, corridors, uh, also any help NPCs into a setting for for this scenario for that day. now the point there is that they're trying to make a fair cha- fair challenge to the players as well as making it an immersive experience for, for the day. Okay, uh, secondly, uh, as the monster player, the evil wizard as it's called in Hero Quest, the overlord as it's called in Descent, and put the challenges in place, it's now the GM's job during play to act out what an orc would do, what an evil mercenary would do, what that band of bandits would would uh, do to the characters, which is nothing good in most cases. Uh, uh, thirdly, the rules designer. Okay, If there's something he wants to do, if there isn't a table for it, he's got to design a rule. A good example of this was when uh, Matt in our Game of Advanced Hero Quest came up with an entire rule set 
for dealing with stealth in, out in the open, which there's nothing for advanced hero quests. We came up with a, that blip system that was uh, close to how things were done in Space Hulk, which worked great. Uh, also, of course, when you're designing rules, there just isn't an eventuality for in the rule set. Number four is the referee. Okay, If rules queries come up from players, if uh, there's something in the rules again that that's two rules that during the game contradict each other he's got to decide no you can't do that to a player or uh, or or realize that there's there's something he has to make up on the spot uh, the director we're get, getting into narrative territory now he decides where the action will go okay uh, he decides where scenes will start or finish when we've had enough in the scene uh, he can refuse requests for for scenes to happen if, a, if an NPC, find me, if a, if, a character, if a player wants to uh, start a scene, he wants to go uh, and role play out a scene between him and uh, and a contact trying to tell, trying to who give him vital information. He can say, "Nope, you're not getting that scene." Uh, I, I don't feel that that's kind of in the uh, the tone of the, of, this, of this of this setting, or it doesn't feel that it's, it fits into the pace that's being set by this game. Uh, next one is uh, I put in a, a dual role of real life leader slash skivvy. Not always the case, but often the GM will be the guy who's uh, a leader in terms of at the table and will take that role on to uh, real life where he's the one getting everything organized. Usually he's the guy keeping all the records. If you uh, uh, he'll be keeping some sort of log of what what the players do and don't know and also in terms of real life where they're uh, where he's the guy who's gonna have to provide the the, the physical setting for the game okay uh, around his house uh, but not always uh, seven keeper of secrets what's going on behind his screen one thing the GM is allowed to do, but none of the players are allowed to do, is keep secrets from the GM. Or keep secrets from everyone. Okay? If a, if a note is passed between two players, the GM's got to say that. Okay? If a note's passed between a player and a GM, which I know a lot of people hate, but it's, it's common practice. I think done right is fine. None of the other players see that secret note. The GM's got to see it. He has to know what's going on. Uh, lastly, World Builder. Uh, it's taking a step above uh, the scenario designer. Uh, this is creating the setting where the scenario is going to happen. Okay, right, let's get on with the show. Yeah. So uh, this was Joe's topic, so I'll let you introduce it, Joe. What were, uh, what were you thinking along these lines? Mate, well... Um it kind of links into an article I did not so long ago for um, Geek Native. Or as I was going to say, the era of the GM over, and then the follow-up article about building a GMless game. And I call it design without a safety net, um, <laughs> because that's what I think the, the GM role basically is. It's a safety net kind of for the designer. Like if a mechanic doesn't quite work, the GM can ignore it or house rule it. Or if the pace slips, the gem has to pick up the slack. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are just time. those many rules that the GM has. I've written down seven things that he does. And uh, did, did you get that thing I sent through earlier on? Yeah, it was really good. That's the grant, yeah. Ooh, yeah. I haven't got that, I don't think. 
All right, I, sh I shared it on. Go yeah, I should have just emailed it like an email con because I couldn't share it. But it's, it's on. Um, it's on Google Docs. I thought I shared it with you. It no, you sent it by email as well, Grant. No, just to you though. God, oh, was it? Right? I, th I thought I was using the sophisticated modern version of <laughs> by by sharing it to Joe, uh -huh. but that didn't. I wouldn't use work. technology, Grant. It never works. Never works. Um, Put it in the post box last week. <laughs> yeah, I should be able to get. Oh, I've got it here. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a, it's a funny way to think of it, though, Joe. So you think basically that designers should create a game that runs perfectly every time, based on the fact that there's no one there to save it if it's going wrong. It just needs. It just requires much more precise rules, much more solid mechanics. Is that what you're thinking? Ultimately, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I think. I think a GM's kind of like a patch. Like, if you imagine that uh, if the, someone did an online game or a video game, that in order for it to work, you need someone running it, running the monsters, deciding what happens, putting the encounters into place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or a war game, which is what used to happen. You have... Yeah. Um, we, we, I think I said before, I don't know if it was on one of our pilot episodes. Sorry, I'm speaking to my hand. Um... I don't know if it was in one of our pilot episodes where we're talking about Warhammer. I've got a borrowed Matt's copy of uh, Warhammer Second Edition, and it's got um, it, it expect fully expects you to use a GM. Yeah, uh, and that's what definitely came up with the look at the warbands, the chaos warbands. Like the whole idea of that is that there'll be a GM running the game who'll come up with scenarios to try and help balance it out slightly or so that it doesn't matter if your warband's a lot weaker than another one, there's still something for you to do in that uh, conflict, in that encounter. So, back, so, but yeah, so back in those days, there wasn't a need to balance uh, to balance the game or to even have a tight set of rules that actually uh, fit together. Um, and that's kind of... So what you're saying, Joe, is, is that's kind of persisted with role-playing games, whereas in other areas, that it's that's tightened up and we don't need a GM. Yeah, exactly. I think if, if you look at Warhammer, that's a good, a good example from back in the second edition days, because it was uh, so loosely defined. You would need a GM to to be the balance, so that two people getting together to have a battle could have, you know, both have a reasonable chance. Whereas uh, now, with, in eighth edition Warhammer, um, you know, you get flame wars and threads about which units are overcosted and which are undercosted, but. <laughs> you, you never play, you don't play with a GM. It's just two players yeah. turn up, play each other with their books, and it pretty much works. Yeah, there's all you're always going to moan about Hydras being too cheap, <laughs> Night Runners being well, pointless. But <laughs> yeah, well, I still think it's never worked against you. <laughs> yeah, I always think it's amazing how balanced Warhammer Fantasy is, given how many different rules and how many different units there are. Yeah, and I think they have got got better in the recent editions in 8th edition seems yeah. 8th edition books so far seem a lot better than the 7th edition books when it comes to comes to balance yeah. um, but that's all, all moving further away from the, the idea of having a GM to straighten it all out yeah, yeah. so you role, role playing role playing games are kind of being left behind in that advancement in the industry and in, in sort of the art form of, of games design do you think? I mean, are you are you thinking? Basically, you say left behind, but I mean, we play a lot of the old ones. Like we play, we well, our main sort of proper RPG is Rollmaster, and surely that hasn't the the books that Matt's using these days haven't changed. When did he buy it? Are they like nineteen eighties books or something? 
Yeah, at least eight is there. Yeah. So, like, yeah, we're not really playing, we're not just playing Role Master. We're playing Matt's Role Master. Yeah, yeah. But if you take, I'm just thinking, if you, take, if you take that, though, and say D&D, how much are they actually changing? How much have they changed in the last 10 years? I mean, D&D's changed a lot. Has it? Yeah, I mean, Role, Role Master's kind of is defunct now. It's not. I don't right. think any. I don't even know if anyone owns the license to it. Okay. Or probably you can get the old PDFs. They're probably out, but it's it's not had anything new for a long time. And the, in fact, the latest edition that came out, I think people just preferred the old stuff. I remember Matt picked up some of the latest edition of Role Master when they were still doing new editions, which was, I don't know, probably. It's ninety-seven. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was when we were at uni. So, yeah, it probably was about ninety-seven. And then I think they did. They tried to do a light one after that, but people didn't really like it. Um, but it's just. I think the role of the gems kind of become like a sacred cow, in um, in role in role-playing games. It was for a long time. It's kind of like, well, there's always been a gem, so we need to have a gem. Mm. So every. Well, the vast majority of, of games that were written from that traditional mindset was that uh, you, know, you look at D and D as a template, and that has a games master. So you have you have a games master who runs the world, and then you have players who play their characters, and that's it. That's yeah. It. That's See, I th I I think from looking at role master and looking at the amount of uh, the amount of books and the amount of tables in there, looking at D and D, my experience of it, and this of the reason I like those systems is because of the kind of concrete um, rules in there, the amount of detail that's in there that tells you exactly what happens. Like you fall off something five foot tall, this is how much it hurts, this is how many hit points you lose, that kind of thing. That looks to me like they've designed in quite a lot of detail though and there's not that much in the way of crutches. Like D GMs are actually constrained quite a lot by the level of detail in these books. Well, I think there's, there's so it, when it gets to that point, there's so much detail that the GM just ignores it. Right. Just, okay. It just makes it up as they go along. Do <laughs> like, you think Matt has ever looked at a falling table? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I mean, you're well. You were saying at the start that you think it's making them lazy. Basically, you think it's making games designers lazy because they've got a GM to to take over. But maybe I'm just looking at the big the big. Games here, who ha which have been developed over years and have had a whole lot of work put into them. Do you, wh which games do you, do you have? Some examples of games you think are a bit lazy because because of the GM being present. Um, and it's not so much they're being lazy; it's just that they're kind of blinkered into like it's got to be like that. And then yeah, they can have they'll have a hundred of different tables to talk about different. Um, Scenarios that might come up, you know, you've got your falling damage, you're, you're falling and drowning, how long you can go for food in the wilderness. Yeah. But that, that level of complexity, <laughs> I don't think in a, in a story game you never really need. And it, if it will come down to GM, the GM will just, just uh, make a judgment on it. Very rarely they'll actually look it up. And that's kind of when the games start falling apart, when they start looking up things on that level of complexity and like going, I've got to mm. consult this table now. Um, yeah, I suppose so, is that is that designers using GMs for the wrong thing because that's stuff that tables. Well, I don't know. 
is that the stuff that would be fine for a GM to do just to make up this is what happens? Because you can guess. You get hit by a sword, there's 10 hit points, that's half of your hit points gone, so you lose an arm, say. <laughs> but it's actually mm -hmm. the stuff that you would want a GM to do are the more sort of story-driven elements, the more plot-driven stuff, the more, more of the things that affect how much players enjoy the game as opposed to this sort of really mechanical you die this much or you you whatever. Well, I think that the gym has to do it all, and that's yeah. why it's such a, a difficult. It's a difficult role to have, and it's a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure. And that mm -hmm. the GM is because you're telling a story, but the GM is the author. The GM is like has the final edit. Everything has to in a traditional. This is like I'm talking about the traditional sense of role-playing games. Everything has to go through the GM for it to be okay. Um, and it it takes a lot of control and creativity away from the player. I think when they always have to ask. Like sometimes it's called like a mother may I approach where you have to ask, you know, can I do this? Yeah. May I do this? Is it alright for me to do this? Is there a <laughs> is there a fork on the table? No, there isn't a fork on alright, well I can't <laughs> to, eat, <laughs> to eat the sausage with the yeah. <laughs> that sounds like the best session ever. <laughs> What's the challenge rating of that sausage? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I tackle the sausage, I eat it, devoured. <laughs> That's it, but it, it can get to that almost that level of, of ridiculousness. Whereas um, I think if the mechanics themselves just gave everyone more um, authority to narrate things into the world, uh, then you don't need that they're all the GM. Because the moment the, the traditional way the GM has it all, the GM has access to rule zero basically that they can overrule anything in the game at any point if they feel like it. Yeah, yeah. But then again, what well how do you how do you draw the line though? How do you make how do you put the limits in while still allowing the players to have that uh, that control? Cuz obviously if you have no limits then there's no fun basically because you can do anything you want. Yeah, you need it's good to have constraints, but I think it's good to have them encode like into mechanics. Uh, like if you look at internal contenders, that's a good example of when it's your your turn, you pick a type of scene from um, a fixed choice. You've only got so many choices you can make. Or you can have something um, free play where you can role play anything but none of your stats are going to change. <laughs> so if you want something meaningful mechanically you have to pick from one of the other types of scenes. Yeah. Uh, but you know within that scope how far it, it can go. Yeah. I think what you're saying there is um, uh, even though you can have limitless there's limitless potential in terms of where the story goes, uh, success or failure um, is actually very, very strictly controlled. Uh, you, If you fail to uh, say in Eternal Contenders, if you don't spend enough money and you don't uh, make your con uh, the check for connecting with your connection, then you don't gain hope, and you you know it's, it's a failure. You um, and yeah. you have to you're, you you can narrate whatever you want, but as long as long as you narrate that you failed it, <laughs> uh, the, the, you you've failed in that in that scene because you've not you've not uh, played the mechanics quite right, or that you got unlucky. Uh, so yeah. you know you can you can describe that any way you want, and then you'll build thing, introduce characters, and build things into the world, and introduce an entirely new um, 
uh, uh, part of the setting is, is is part of your failure, but you've you've failed, and you're going to have to narrate that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I have to admit, yeah, I was <laughs> that last uh, role master game that we played when Matt asked us to basically create our own scenes and write in something new for our characters. Yeah, and then I actually did write something, and I know it was a little bit, possibly a little bit. Um, Outrage. Well, I don't even think it was that silly. I mean, he could have he could have decided what he wanted that monastery to be or whatever. Basically, I uh, for everybody listening uh, in that campaign, I play a um, a plasma mage who doesn't really know anything about plasma. He can cast it like crazy, but he doesn't know the science behind it. So he's just a, a wild mage who's just sort of figuring it out as he goes along. So basically, my mission at the moment in that campaign is to try and uh, get a tutor or you know find out something technical about this magic so that I can use it so much better. Uh, so <laughs> Matt had said that we could um, write whatever we want, we could create our own scenes. So I wrote in that uh, I discovered along the way the whole my whole mission for the last uh, this well it was it was we were traveling north weren't we so we had basically... We were traveling north and it was gonna start from the battle but Matt said yeah you can um, Call for a flashback scene. We yeah. get one flashback scene of something that happened on the journey north. Yeah, which was for for a traditional game. That's kind of the GM giving the players a lot of creative input. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's way that's way beyond the uh, the the bounds of the usual school game. game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it worked really well, didn't it? Because we the flashbacks were great fun, yeah. and everyone's we pretty much did everybody's. But basically, I wrote in that along that way, those two months uh, or whoever it was, I'd been looking the whole way for like somebody with even a, a hint of magic about them, so I could find somebody that would lead me to a tutor. Uh, and then I found something, and basically the scene ended with me discovering uh, a monastery or a, a, a old building which was full of magic users. But that was yeah, vetoed. That was, that was vetoed. The, <laughs> yeah, because that was, the rest of our flashbacks all built on something that was established already in the world yeah. and the story. And you just invented this whole thing. Yeah, which but didn't was, really fit in <laughs> with the world. Especially because it's really strictly controlled magic. Well, the thing is, it fits in with it fits in with Colin's, what Colin's view yeah, of the I mean, world that's, that's is. Because otherwise it would be moment. Yeah, totally. So I don't, and I realised it was a bit, a wee bit. So I was, well, I didn't know when, <laughs> I wasn't uh, sure whether Matt would let it go or not. But I wonder. You're I telling me be... before that you you didn't know whether he'd allow it or not. Yeah, so you didn't know your <laughs> But I thought maybe I would get, a, I would get like a lower version of it or something like that, or you know, downgrade it slightly so I hadn't found a monastery, <laughs> but it was like a an old scroll or you know anything. <laughs> well, yeah. on the other hand, I think. Your scene ended up pushing towards that uh, because you, it, it, the scene that you got did push you a little further towards your your long lost brother, who yeah. would know about this sort of stuff. Yeah. But then you don't, you, you didn't. As I remember, the last time we talked about it, you didn't actually remember that scene because you were too drunk. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the the disadvantages of port on a role playing night. <laughs> but no, no, I, I, I'm not complaining here because I realised that it was a bit of a, an outrageous thing to write. But yeah, but it's an interesting <laughs> example of, of the GM's role and the GM yeah. 
stepping at that and just just flat out say no, that doesn't happen. Yeah. That monastery doesn't exist. Yeah, I think it will. I, I suppose my point there was that Matt gave us that creativity, and he's probably listening to this because I think he does sometimes and shouting yeah. at the at the speakers. But he gave us that creativity. <laughs> he gave us that option, but then didn't actually let us follow through with it in some ways. So, but well, no, I mean. I, <laughs> took it a bit far. He gave us an option to, to call for a scene that could have happened on the way, but, <laughs> but I think you took that creativity too far to create like a whole new load of powerful magic characters yeah. in a world where that's very rare, where it yeah. wasn't established, where there was nothing in the fiction that, yeah, yeah. that hinted well, okay. at that being there. <laughs> well, that's kind of that's kind of the point I'm getting at. <clears throat> How do you allow that creativity, um, but put bounds on it? Because um, there were no bounds on that. There was, I mean, no, I, I realised that that was a bit outrageous, but that wasn't. We weren't told that. That we weren't set those limits, really. No, so you're right. That's, that's part of, of the GM's role, kind of controlling, yeah, controlling the narrative, controlling what what goes in and what goes what goes out. Um, so if it had been like a gymless game where everyone had free reign to call for their scenes and define their scenes, then yeah, fine, yeah, you find that magic monastery. Uh, they train you up, or whatever, and that would be your choice as your scene, unless you've got a mechanic where people can veto things or say, you know, spend a story point saying, well, I'm going to spend a story point because I don't think that should exist in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a double-edged sword, though. I mean, it does. it is an advantage, I think, if you have one person and their vision kind of driving the whole tone, then... I, I think it's a bit, a little bit less. I don't know. I, I think with loads of people, there, there's a danger that the, the whole vision can become kind of what's the word, disparate, where where everybody's got their own ideas, and if they're if they're quite um, diverging, everybody's ideas are quite diverging. Then then it doesn't kind of the plot doesn't hang together quite as well as it would when there's one person, one director. The GM in in charge, but then you end up. Yeah. But then the, the the flip side of that is you do feel uh, uh, disengaged from it if if you're if you're if you feel your ideas aren't fully being put across. Yeah, yeah. In, in a GM game, yeah. it's, it's a good point. I think that means maybe one of the strengths to recommend a GM-led game. That's when I say if the main purpose of the game is to explore the world. And find the answers to questions. Yes, that's and one. That's one rule. Person controlling yeah. that probably. It's very hard to, to do that if um, everyone's got free reign to make. Yeah. Um, but that's only one type of game, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in Matt's defence, that's what makes his game so great: the fact that he has that world in his head, and every time we walk around a corner, there's something new and deep and great. So. Yeah, yeah it's worth it's worth having those bounds. On his world because it is his world because this stuff that we can discover is great and this kind of the, the, yeah what we can do in that world is so much fun as well yeah and I think that's the good a good way to use the the GM's role if if the game uh, so if if you're designing a game that you really want it to be about exploration of a world as if it was real like simulationism or whatever you want to call it um, or if you want to do it like uh, for a, a mystery game like a whodunit style, play, yeah, yeah, solve the crime, then it's probably better to have one 
one mind, one vision of what the world's really like, and then everyone else is finding their way through that. Um, yeah, and have that, exp that exploration um, yeah. aspect. Yeah. So yeah, then, sorry, they, they can give you the revelations, then gradually, as you find stuff out, as the players find things out, and it'll be, and it'll uh, hold meaning and hang together because it's only one person. Because it's yeah, very hard to do that. Like you say, if, if there's lots of people with all their own views on how the world should be or what things might get revealed, then it can become quite disparate. Um, having said that, like the game Inspectors. Um, is like a investigation-based game, but it is where everyone has um, narrative input. Um, I think that's sometimes. I mean, I've played it a couple of times, but I did find that that sometimes it does get a bit kind of. It doesn't quite hang together, and you get to a point where it, where it doesn't really make as much sense as if it was just a, a straight-up investigation that someone's written yeah. the, the scenario beforehand. So does that work like a game where? You don't know who's done it because it hasn't actually been decided yet. Yeah. 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 You don't know who the the bad guy is or who's. It's like a it's like a Ghostbusters style game, um, but you only you get plot revelations. I think if you roll a five or a six or something on your uh, skill check, which is one of d six. Um, I feel like that could be. Sorry. That's Interrupting. Um, that could be that's quite a cool premise for a game where you would kind of maybe try to players could try to paint the plot into a corner so that the other person wouldn't know how to do it. So instead of so that you could um, some some investigators are are working. Uh, the, the players investigators have to almost kind of work out. How to stump everyone else into even uh, coming up with an, coming up with an explanation as to how their favoured suspect could have done it. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, that's an interesting idea. So you you're getting at the, yes, you need like a pool of suspects and then people to, um, yeah, establish certain facts. In yeah, the plot. <clears throat> you're almost planting the yeah planting the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you take you take your turn and you spend your resource uh, just to say, I I actually that person couldn't have it couldn't have been uh, Professor Plum. He was with me last night. <laughs> and then the person who's trying to put Mr. Plum in the dock is then then has to then has to figure out a way of uh, of of changing that. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm going off at a massive tangent. <laughs> hey, live game design, we're good at live this. Live game design, yeah. That's <laughs> I, I games. And, uh, yeah, I think um, Graham Walmsley's A Taste for Murder is a, is a bit like that, although I don't know that, no, you don't actually try and paint other people as suspects, but you don't know who's done it until halfway through the game, and then, uh, then one person becomes the detective and has to try and... They'd figure it out, or do they just decide who did it? I can't remember. Anyway, I'll put a link. I'll put a link to the show. Uh, link to that we'll in the show notes after that, editing yeah. or during yeah. editing. So check that out. Um, yeah, another stuff, and probably more of, um, formulaic stuff as well. We should touch on for the, the role of the GM, just in terms of like deciding when scenes start and when scenes end. That usually falls to the GM, but it can be done through mechanics. Like if you um, in a GMless game. Yeah, the thing is, I find it easy to get mixed up between a narrative game and 
and the GMless game. Yeah. Because I, I don't know if they're both the same. I mean, because I played um, Over the Edge, which is, you know, a very stats light game. It's a huge, proper, big book, and there must be. A, a tiny amount of rules and, and a huge amount uh, on the setting, because uh, that that's it's definitely a definitely a narrative game, and there's loads of opportunity to for putting like little uh, sort of character sticks and and man manipulating those their um, traits aren't aren't just numbers. How much is strength? How much is constitution? How much is dexterity? It's uh, I've got a, I got a pack of pack of cards in my pocket, and that tells me that I'm a gambler. And whenever a scene comes up where I can say I'm using my gambling, then I get bonus dice on the roll, and, and things like that. You know, I've got I've got I've got a hat that hides my head, and that that shows you that I'm a mysterious mysterious um, bounty hunter. No, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> mysterious milliner. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it shows that I'm a bounty hunter, and uh, and uh, actually that that made him a time traveler as well. Uh, <laughs> that was a it was a really good game. That, uh, but there was a GM. There was a GM in charge of that, and he would um, decide whether your justification for you know he had a plot in his head. He decided the scenes that would the, the or at least the starts of the scenes, and. He would be the arbiter, the referee. It's one of the roles of the GM. He he's a he'd be the referee over whether you would get that bonus. I'm echoing again. You are echoing a bit. Oh, and it's um, by Robin Robin D Laws of Hamlet. That is Robin D Laws again, actually. And Jonathan yeah. Tweet, who did Over the Edge. Yeah. I wrote down you one of the things that you wrote down, Grant, in your wee document here about the GM's role as the uh, as the enemy, basically. Yeah. I always think yeah, that's quite an interesting yeah. one. Like, has the monster player or the evil wizard? Yeah, the reason I put evil wizard is that's the that's the role that he plays in the, uh, the, the what, yeah in the classic hero quest. Um, in right, Descent okay. Two, I didn't talk at all in the last episode about Descent Two or, or, or Descent. Pardon me, it's in its second edition now. It's Fancy Flight's Dungeon Bash game. That that was another one. Next generation, we're talking about actually. Yeah, they play that a lot. Um, yeah. Anyway, the, the time is gone for that. But you know, the <laughs> overlord or the evil wizard are are the monster player, and the scenario is set up. And in those games we talked about, the scenario is already set up for you, which is why it's quite a strong role. Or the alien player in Space Crusade, they yeah. had a they yeah. had a scenario um, set up, so the, the pressure isn't on them to make to make the game. Uh, balanced for the players, they can they can kind of take on an, an equal role in everything. The 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 quote GM type player is just the bad guy and can go balls out to 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 kill everyone <laughs> without without excuses. Yeah, or yeah. thinking, oh, they're yeah. not going to like me because I haven't designed this scenario right. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Because you've got to make it fun, you've got to make it challenging, but you've got to not piss people off. <laughs> like, how do you... Yeah, because you're not that's your it, friend, but you're not their enemy. The first two and things I put on that list are scenario designer and monster player, and they're totally at odds with each other, or, or yeah, can yeah. be at odds with each other. 
And what it, wind, what it winds up being is to, to not lose your friends and lose, well, or at least you lose your players. The, when, when you're being that monster player and taking on the role of the monsters and the traps and the, and the, the big bad guy at the end, you end up having to fudge it. Yeah, having to change you your design. Sometimes, but that's where design can help you. Mechanics can help you. Like if you have some sort of resource limitation for the monster player, yeah, um, then that makes it fair. That makes it people know they're on the same page. You can't just have another six dark elves coming through the back door because the players look like they were going to win that fight or something. Whereas, but in traditional yeah. RPGs, um, there isn't that balance. There isn't in, there isn't um, finite resources that the GM can always add or or take away. Um, but that's something that some games have addressed and done quite, uh, you know, quite well. I think um, three sixteen is one that comes to mind, where there's the the alien player. That's where you, you are playing like colonial marine starship trooper type characters. But every planet you land on has um, not space marines. Not space marines. No, Greg Ledshaw, <laughs> not to mention space marine in the book. <laughs> Damn it! You're gonna get a. <laughs> Although it does mention power claws, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's power glove, something like that. Anyway, um, yeah, the, there's a certain number of uh, alien threat tokens that the alien player has, which are, uh, represent the amount of threat on the planet. And once they're all gone, the planet's done. You've, right. The Marines have killed all sentient life on that planet and they can move on. <laughs> Safe in the knowledge of a job well done. Um, yeah, of extermination. Yeah. <laughs> but, then, but that is fair then. You, you know that the gem's not just screwing you because it's, it's up front with how much um, he's got to throw at you. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw an interesting uh, comment actually. It was in Google Plus a guy had asked a question. Um, and he was... He was well. He'd just run a game where here he'd done something. He was asking everyone else what they thought of it, and what he'd done was <clears throat> they'd set up the game as a pretty standard high fantasy thing. So they rolled up elves, dwarves, all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and then they'd played played through sort of the first half hour, and then suddenly they'd been taken in by some kind of warp, uh, and ended up in uh, today's world. So they were elves and dwarfs and all that running about in uh, the middle of London, say in the 1990s uh, and he was asking people what they thought about that kind of change in situation and a lot of people were feeding back saying that they would just hate it they were like they'd invested in a game that was going to be fantasy they'd invest a game where they can use the skills of their dwarf and their elf and all that kind of stuff like is that kind of thing is that kind of thing alright from a GM that's sort of I mean that's obviously taken a whole lot of control but I think that sounds quite cool I, I would quite like that game <laughs> mm, it's, it's a big wrench isn't it and like you say if people have invested in it being a certain type of game and then it's suddenly something totally different Yeah, you're suddenly talk, turning it into an urban fantasy which is, which is no bad thing uh, in itself but a lot of people don't like fantasy in that style Yeah, they, they, they want it in a fantasy world it sounds a bit like a gimmick. It's like, why, why are you doing that? Is that going to create a better story, or is that to just so you can fight people with guns? <laughs> you know, well, I suppose that's the why? scenario design thing, isn't it? I mean, that that's designing in a problem that has to be solved. So you're you're in your fantasy setting. Something happens to your characters, whereas they whereby they become beset by baddies and they've got you know, they have adversity they have to try and get get over but it's just 
this, the thing that seemed to get people about that was that, yeah, they wanted a certain type of game, I guess. So I suppose even, is it, is it bad even if a GM, I don't know, creates like a, a fantasy horror type of thing when people thought they were just going to get standard fantasy dragons and things? I mean, is that kind of scenario... Um, uh, putting on the players in modern day completely rips the entire story out of fantasy and makes it something entirely different. It's, it's uh, like I like it. I quite like it. It's like reverse Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if if the story, if the point then becomes they've got to find their way home, yeah, then then fair enough. Well, that could be quite entertaining. But yeah. the point uh, is like now you're elves and dwarves in. No, no. I, well, I I saw it as they had to solve the problem. They had to get home. Yeah, it was like they were yeah. they were taken in by this warp, and they had to try and reverse it or whatever. Can you imagine though? Can you imagine? Well, imagine this: if Matt were suddenly to do that to our characters in our game we've been playing for twelve years, would you be happy about it? I I honestly don't think I'd mind. I think it'd be quite cool. Just something different. I'd something. like maybe. I think I could I could no, take it if it was only as it was wasn't part of canon. If we just said right, let's 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 throw well, this an alternative universe uh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of comic book comic book standard practice, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm not sure. No, sorry, I just thought I'd throw that in because it was. I just remembered I'd read that just a while ago, and I thought the whole the whole comic thread, the comment thread around it was quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's an interest in. Point, and I think it's like the James got to know his, his players and know what they know them better than the game themselves. at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it's whether the GM has to cater to the players, basically, what the players want, or whether it's the GM's game, like whose game is it? Yeah, and that's another yeah. struggle with the, the role of, of the GM as well. But it kind of becomes their game because it is more important. They'll usually be doing the scheduling as well, and they've got to do a lot more work, a lot more yeah. preparation. Yep. I've, got, I've got in as one of my rules, I've got eight rules actually, because I forgot about world building, which is different from scenario designer. Oh yeah. Um, the skivvy. The re- real leader, real life leader slash skivvy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then I, I find with our with our long term campaign that it's um it's usually us driving the next game. It's usually us that's pushing to get another session done as opposed to GM. Yeah. yeah. And I mean our game is very different from most games though in that we we play so infrequently. I think that's because well, what that keeps what's keep the quality of it so high is what I think yeah. Matt always has so long to prepare. Um I don't think that matters. He always does it on always does it on Friday night of the weekend. Even <laughs> <laughs> the night before. Well, maybe it's more recharging than preparing. But. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I because yeah, I can imagine that games become pretty stale if you play them pretty much every single week. Even though I think that'd be amazing because I've never managed to actually do that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to, to keep that going, keep that momentum going of, of something. You know, bringing something every week and it just gets uh, tend to get samey or you run out of ideas and that's the other thing that Jim can feel, feel under pressure to run a game when they're not really up for it or not really ready to but they yeah, know that yeah. if yeah. I don't do this I'm letting everyone down there's no game so yeah. you know, I'll just I'll just try something I'll just buy yeah, a scenario off the internet and run that and yeah, it probably won't yeah. really work it doesn't really make much sense for the characters but uh, they'll bash a few orcs so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> so yeah 
<laughs> but if that, the way I think about the Gemis games again, like if those tasks are divvied up between the players, like everyone uh, gets to contribute and bring bring ideas in, introduce characters, introduce plots, then it just makes the uh, the weight a lot lighter. It's all shared, so it's not all on one person. Yeah. To bring all that. I do find sometimes that uh, for a GMless game, you do have to be uh, sort if if you're not in the mood, you know, if you're not hugely up for it, you can sit there, roll some dice, and say, oh, "I'm killing, I'm killing some orcs," and that's fine. Um, making something up sometimes it can, it can be difficult. But having said that, no, I mean, I th I th I think to me, there there's definitely a place for both. There's definitely like I really enjoy a GM-led game, who where there is that like you were saying earlier, Joe. There's the who done it, the puzzle solve and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to have that with without a GM, and yeah. I definitely enjoy that. Uh, yeah, probably more often than the GM-less stuff. But then again, I love playing a game of uh, LNL, for example, Labyrinths and Lycanthropes, where we're just basically collaboratively coming up with the world and like. But that's yeah, more well, sort of. Uh, a quick and dirty fun game, I suppose, isn't it? You're yeah, LNL's um, interesting case. I could do talk about it because that's one where, um, although I don't know, it's it's kind of is it is gemless, but it's not because you just take it in turns. Like one person will be the labyrinth lord for each labyrinth, um, but it's got a lot of things that we talked about. It's got you've got finite resources in terms of the monsters mm -hmm. you can throw at the party, and you're trying. The bad guy player is trying to win. Is trying to. Uh, Get a total party knockout and lock them yeah. up in prison, yeah. so that yeah. their character can then come and rescue everyone and look great. And level <laughs> up. Yeah. Um, but then it rotates, so someone else gets to go at being the the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes away a lot of the disadvantage to being a GM, i.e., alienating your friends by killing all of their favourite characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you don't have all to take a turn. Time. On you, there's not one person responsible for prep because everyone builds the world together and everyone yeah, exactly, yeah. comes up with yeah. ideas for the labyrinths and stuff yeah. and ideas for the monsters. Yeah, and half the time when we play a game of labyrinths and like a throw that's the most fun part is when we're coming up with a map and all the stupid names for all the places and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, I need to I might, I'll revisit that and uh, do a second edition at some point. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah. Just, uh, or just a version that's more kind of pick up and play so everything's done already so you've got like more monsters that you could just use in a map that's already there, so you could just jump straight into it. Uh, although it is fun coming up with your own. Yeah, it probably would be good for a really quick game to have that, but definitely keep in the rules that you can, or definitely keep in a section. Maybe more of an expansion than a, than, a whole, than a whole new set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, quick start expansion type uh, thing. Although I did see, I did read on, online that one guy um, who really liked uh, Labyrinth and Lycan and been running it online. Um, uh, I can't pronounce his name, Philip. I think his Polish name, Lukudzi. I can't pronounce it. Racist. He'd been, he'd been running it for, for Conan, but running it straight, playing it straight, right. just using the mechanics for a, a straight up fantasy game. And it right. sounds, okay. sounds like it works really well. For that. Oh, so, so that sort of sword and sorcery um, well, yeah. Conan type. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Has he got a write-up of uh, the game anywhere? Um, well, there's probably one somewhere. I don't yeah. know where to find it. Uh, maybe on Story Games or somewhere yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. I might we have to ask you about that afterwards. Yeah, I think he was. I think he was running it on on Vassal as well. He had like a, a thing set up so you could see what what cards everyone was dealt. Um, although I've, I've found that it works 
just as well, if not better, if you use D20s instead of cards, for at least for um, attack rolls and defense rolls, because then you get less ties. Um, and if you've got a computer set up to do that, it's dead quick. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, sorry, I suppose to go on just a little bit more about what I was saying before, the time and place for each type, is there's also definitely a time for the really creative narrative-driven games as well. There's sometimes you're just not feeling very creative and you need yeah. a world set out in front of you. And other times you can have a great yeah. game by totally making up the story and making up the narrative and actually it works really well. But that is definitely one where the player's mood um, and energy levels and all that kind of stuff come into it. Yeah, having yeah. said that, I mean, I had all the the kids I've had coming into the school, and especially on the, my Tuesday night games, I think it's four or five sessions we played. We've not had a down session. In fact, I've gone in sleepy and 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 come come out kind of up because we've actually got a really good group, I suppose, um, at the games club. And we've all sort of taken it on and kind of bounced off each other um, with ideas for the world a, a bit. And um, yeah, uh, so I've always been in the mood. Whereas I think, yeah, I think the collaborative process that has actually um, pushed me up. I think it's a lot of time we play Joe's games is, uh, or we play uh, try and play a GMless game. It's we're trying it as a one-off, and then just starting it can be quite, quite, quite tough. But once yeah. you get over that first bit, you started to create the world. It kind of generates its own energy. That's true. Yeah, we've. <clears throat> like, I'm thinking of a lot of the times when we played contenders or similar, where yeah, we we never end up actually finishing. So, a lot of the time spent is actually creating the characters. It's that, to tough, and, it's that yeah. tough kind of um, startup phase. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if if you got something you're already been working on, well, yeah. Evidences yeah. from 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 my from playing it at the club that it's worked really well. Yeah, definitely. I suppose that's why we end up going back to the same characters in those type of games. Sometimes it's like I'm bringing back that one from the last time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just it's yeah, easy. The story's not quite done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to finish that off, and that was uh, that's a good point. It's one with the, with the collaborative games. Uh, I think part of what you were saying, Grant, is well, when, even when you come in feeling a bit tired, like Energy Devil's Low, you get uh, you, you buy into it, and you, you don't have the option of just turtling. Like, if it was a, a GM-led game, you could just think, oh, I can't really be arsed. I'm just going to you know, sit here and flick through the equipment list, and I'll roll some dice if we get in combat. I don't really have to do anything else, so I won't bother. Yeah. Um, whereas if it gets around to, like, it's your turn, right, what are you doing on your scene? Do you want to go shopping? Do you want to try and mug this guy? Do you want to start, do you want to have a, a, a duel? You know, do you want to go training? And uh, then you, like, have to input a bit more, which which wakes you up a bit. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and actually, yeah, and the, those, the, your, your list of, your list of possible scenes does give you inspiration. It's like, what do mm-hmm. I want to do? Or even just looking at the, what you get from the resources that you gain from each scene, whether you want to get more money or to become better at fighting, or or if you want uh, to get yourself closer to the to the end game uh, because you think you'd have an advantage at that point. All these things you, you you're pushing in terms of mechanics, in terms of winning the game, it can actually um, then lead you on to a scene that you that you find really fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose that's where there's this sort of slight, uh, what do you call it, GM proxy 
where you've got in um, Hell for Leather, Joe, in the form mm -hmm. of the cards. So whatever's on the card is the sort of slight inspiration. It doesn't have to be entire inspiration, but it gives you this tiny little starter for your next scene. Yeah. Uh, and I think you were talking at one point about like drawing up some tables about just like tiny little again inspirations like you'd roll even if you had a, a D100 table with words duck uh, or <laughs> fireplace or you know that kind of stuff so you roll your D100 and you have this word and in some way that word has to be involved in your scene and that's it's, it wouldn't direct it very much but it's still even that tiny little uh, sort of kernel of uh, creative ideas enough to get you started in some ways like that. I found that with the helpful leather that even if I'm not feeling very creative or very energetic or whatever, I can get I can make up stuff in that easier because I just take that yeah, idea yeah. from the card and that that sort of generates something a lot easier. That's true. I think yeah, for this year cards are the new dice. <laughs> um, Roleplay legends, uh, Robin Laws and James Wallace both got. Kickstarters that are done for uh, new games that are using cards, <laughs> card-based mechanics. Right. And, and uh, yeah, watch the space. But uh, things crossed. I've been in touch with James Wallace um, because his his new game. Oh right, well. <laughs> stop me if this sounds familiar. It's a tarot-based game of supernatural horror. <laughs> the protagonist. Yeah, I saw that. Kickstart. By digging themselves out of a shallow grave in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> So you sit here and talk. Is it is 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 it your lawyers that are? <laughs> 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 is it is that the one that's called Shell for Feathers or something? <laughs> uh, no, it's called Alas Vegas. Uh, so <laughs> I'm in touch with him, and I'm um, gonna um, maybe cross promote with Hell Forever, hopefully, and see like cool. might have might have added as one of the the rewards. Like if people pledge a certain amount, then they can get a copy of Hell for Leather ah, cool. as well. Yes. So something to get their uh, to get their teeth into the tarot decks before they get their uh, Alas Vegas. Aye. That's and if you, really want to to, if you really want to confuse them, you could also get involved to see if you can get them copies of Hell Four Leather. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, both versions. Four, yeah. <laughs> they're not versions; they're entirely different games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit of explanation for the listeners: There, Hell Four, <laughs> the number four leather, is a different yeah. game. It's a dice-based oh, agility mine. combat game. Oh yeah, well, the other way around. Mine's the, mine's the number. Mine's four. Oh Christ! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, the title, the title-based, uh, the title-based horror game, not the new title-based horror game. That was that's Alas Vegas. <laughs> the Hell F O R leather is the agility-based agility tower. slash dice yeah. tower-based game. Which has got a cool mechanic. <laughs> try and knock over a tower of dice. But you've got to land it in certain places, don't you? That's you try and not to, it's bad if you knock the tower over. You have to try and not knock the tower over but get your, your D ten within the circle. So ah, is that what it is? Right, okay. And if you do knock the tower over the the less far that the dice go uh, I think it's to do with, with with how much they roll, like what mm. the what the values are when the tower falls. Right. You add up all the dice, and uh, okay. uh, the higher it is, the worse. So, yeah, if it's a really high tower you knock over, then yeah, you're probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Um, <laughs> Hi, anyway. Are, are we are we done? Yeah, I think we probably are. I was going to say about the the Hill Folk uh, game, where you're talking about uh, little 
pointers uh, coming out of the tarot deck, uh, one one of the stretch goals or, or one of the bonus things to was it one of the additional pledge things was uh, the the deck of cards which will have the hillfolk art in it, um, but also they'll have little. I don't know, I think it was more than the single words, more single random words on it. But mm. it did actually have pointers on every single card. A yeah, that would be interesting. Setups, which, if I'd only bloody remember to not play XCOM that, for a half an hour that <laughs> night and actually pledged to it, I would have, I would have bought them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think yeah, that's I think that's a really good idea. Fifty-two cards with, yeah, just a few words on each one. More Tardic seventy-eight cards. Oh, is it? Okay. I think Roman D. Laws is. I think the uh, uh, the Hill Folk was just fifty-two. The major card deck. Fair enough. And Robin Laws is doing um, for for Las Vegas. He's he's been unlocked with one of the stretch goals that he's he's doing uh, an article on. Yeah, using the tarot cards for inspiration and uh, scenario building in role-playing games. So that'll be interesting to check out when that comes out. Yeah, imagine. Yeah, nobody, nobody's thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> no. no one's thought of that. Before, apart from the amazing game Swan Song, which please. <laughs> and um, Dragon vs. Gun as well. Dragon vs. Gun, that's un unreleased, so I never actually got around to releasing that. Cause, uh, oh. Yeah, because there was some issues with the artwork where it might not actually be out of copyright. So anyway. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And there's a few things oh, I want to so. But that, yeah. uh, I should get that out because I really, I really like that game. It's a good game. Yeah. I've had some good stories out of that. So. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, yeah, let's tie up. That's about enough of the GMless games. No, no, the role of the GM. Sorry. The role of the GM. The yeah. role of the GM. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Um, I've been uh, Colin Gray, Gamer Colin on Twitter, Colin at DicingDesign.com. And I'm uh, Grant uh, at Grant Sensei and Grant at DicingWithDesign.com. Well done. <laughs> and I'm the Prince of Darkness, aka at JoJ Prince on Twitter. You can check out my website, Prince Darkness Games, or get me on the Dyson uh, with Design email, like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, don't say that again. <laughs> and everyone, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you've somehow, th against all odds, got to this point in the podcast. Uh, if you, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you could put on a, a, a review on iTunes, or even just drop us a comment on the blog, or uh, yeah, just get in touch in some way um, and give us some ideas for future topics you'd like to hear about. We've got plenty of our own, but it'd be great to get some uh, listener. Uh, feedback just for what you'd actually like to hear about um, from expert games designer Joe and his lackeys, me and Grant mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Thank interviewers you. as well, <clears throat> if you've got ideas for anybody you'd like to get interviewed, that'd be good because we are uh, willing to go out there and get them. so, thanks very much <laughs> cheers to the chat guys cheers, see, see you, you later and we'll talk to you next time